Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like pheasants, fantasies, and gold. Well, I want Ooh. to do pheasants, James. <laughs> I, I want to do fantasies and gold. Yeah. Golden fantasies. Mm. Uh, or shrinking, pinking, and drinking, <laughs> blinking, stinking, and linking. Because we will be following the links. Do you see how, how natural that flow was? Very do you see, good, do you see that? It's, it's exactly what we do. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of rust is in fact all about the Industrial Revolution, Viking secrecy, witchcraft, polar exploration, it's about the space race, and it's about Joseph Stalin. Oh, that's a cracker. And Anne of, Anne of Cleves as well. We'll just yeah. throw her in there. Or that the history of poison is in fact all about women and politics in ancient Rome. It's full of assassination and poison academies. Mm. We should definitely do the history of poison. The man, the man not sitting opposite me because we're separated because of COVID-19. Let's just say if history was a wad of tobacco, this man would be a major league baseballer using his mighty jaws of research to chew and chomp down on history until it's a spitty ball of brown filth before ejecting it to the public to wonder at in awe or perhaps disgust. Here it is, Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Spitting Daybell. Hello, Sam. Thank you very much for that um, <laughs> saliva-filled introduction. Well, I've got one for you now. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were the historical embodiment of saliva, he'd only be the biggest spitwad you could imagine, the largest, greenest loogie on the planet. So potent are his historical powers. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Oh, thank you very much. We are back here with episode two of our podcast on the history of saliva. It's turned out to be a classic in the annals of histories of the unexpected. It was a topic I cooked up. Um, James was exceptionally suspicious, even having known me all these years. Um, and it turns out that the history of spitting is absolutely fascinating. In part one, we talked very briefly about how... Um, 
uh, spitting was important in some locations more than others, particularly focused in on America. We talked about how there's a, a history of spitting over time, how it's linked to concepts of civilization, what is or is not appropriate behavior. And then we both concentrated on um, the fascinating history of spitting related to America in the 1850s, spitting very common in America, and it was all shut down because of the way that um, spit and saliva passed on tuberculosis. So it was all shut down. James talked a little bit about material culture. And we'll be finished by talking about uh, people cleaning historical objects with saliva in Portugal in the 1990s, which counts as history in its own right. And it's inspired me to find out how other people uh, cleaned things with spit over time. So, James, what are we going to carry on with now? Well, I'm going to talk about... uh... Children, the history of children and the history of childhood culture. I bought a couple of weeks ago a brilliant, brilliant book by Iona and Peter Opie, uh, The Law and Language of School Children, which is a, the most extraordinary subject. First published in 1959, it's a survey of children's attitudes during the first half of the 20th century and it's it's full of all sorts of things about practices and beliefs and rhymes and chants and catcalls and jokes and riddles and epithets and nicknames juvenile slang basically it's it's looking at childhood culture on the streets around the British Isles and of course you go to the index and one of the things that crops up is spit and attitudes towards spitting. And if you think about how children use spit, uh, they can use it uh, aggressively as a form of vengeance, uh, showing displeasure. So you spit at somebody because you, you don't like them. You can think about the technologies of spit, spit wads, uh, the use of pens, the invention of the biro, the use of pens and and chewing up small pieces of paper and then spitting them out rather than the fashion of a of a pea shooter. Uh, it's also about wet willies. Have you ever heard of a wet willy? You've talked uh, about was, them before. <laughs> I was introduced I was introduced to this by a, an American friend of mine, Stacy, who once crept up behind me and um, she licked her finger and popped it into my ear and I thought it was the grossest thing. But apparently this is this is part and parcel of, of childhood culture. But what I'm interested in talking about now is not these sort of... Uh, these kinds of practices of play and spitting at people, it's the way in which it connects to children's belief systems. Um, and in particular, the way in which it's connected to promises and not telling a lie. And there's an account from a girl who lived in Yorkshire in a place called South Elmsall. Uh, and she wrote, when we make a promise to anyone, they say to us, cross your heart and spit or cross your heart and hope to die. So we wet our finger and make the sign of a cross on our hearts. Sometimes we put our finger on our forehead, then on each shoulder, then on our chest. Sometimes they say to us, put three crosses on your heart. So this idea of, of spit, or saliva, connected to truth-telling, can also be found in the northwest of England, in places like the West Riding, in Lancashire, Cheshire, North Derbyshire, even North Wales, Cumberland and, and Westmoreland over there on the, on the west coast. And a child, when they are questioned about the truthfulness of their statement, will demand, spit your death, or 
spit your mother's death. And this is basically a challenge to them, according to local custom, um, that they are telling the truth. So in a sense, you are making a pledge and a child will spit, cross their throat or spit over their wrists or their little finger uh, and perhaps even just cross their throat as well. Uh, or in Liverpool, they'll link uh, little fingers and spit on them. Uh, or in the West Riding, they spit on the ground. And if they say, if I tell a lie, may I die on the spot where I spit? And there are all sorts of sort of uh, different sort of practices, social practices, um, which talk about the special properties of spittle. Um, and there's an example of a child moistening their finger uh, and showing it, saying, my finger's wet, um, and then wiping it in their armpit, uh, showing that it's dry, uh, um, my, my finger's dry. So again, it's connected to it's connected to truth telling. Uh, once you'd said this, only the sort of uh, the most evil of children. I don't know how, quite how to express it. But once you'd said that, you know, it was giving your honour and only the most reckless of children would then go on to tell a lie. And the wording is actually is actually almost quite constant and varies only slightly from one place to another. So if we think it in in Farnham in Surrey, the phrase is wet my thumb, wipe it dry, cut my throat if I tell a lie. Then in Lydney, I wet my finger, I wipe it dry, I cut my throat if I tell a lie. In Hull, my fingers wet, my fingers dry, God strike me dead if I tell a lie. In Kikaldi, that's wet, that's dry, I hate God if I tell a lie. So the the um, the oath could also be taken on the blade of a penknife, uh, which you spit upon. Um, and this is in Bishop Auckland. Uh, see it's wet, see it's dry, cut my throat if I tell a lie. So it's not just about spit. It's also about cutting. Uh, it's about cutting the one's throat. And we can see this in various other places like Scarborough. Cut my throat and may I die if I ever tell a lie. Or in, in Welwyn, um, if I lie, cut my throat and let me die. In North Devon, more cautiously, cut my mother's throat. Um, also, slit my throat if I lie, Croydon, slit my neck in Lindy. So it's this, it's a gesture across the windpipe. So so there, um, the idea of the veracity of a statement, truthfulness is connected to spit and also to death and also cutting the throat. Another, spit also crops up in various other ways connected to superstitious beliefs and one of which is connected to white horses and this is um this stems from seeing a white horse and how children behave so it comes back to an anecdote um from a plymouthian uh, a gentleman living in plymouth in 1852 and he said that in his boyhood it was very common practice for children when they saw a white horse uh, that sort of passed to spit three times and to go where the spit goes um, and in order to be lucky and so what would happen in practice is once you saw a horse you would then spit as far as you could you'd then move to that spot where it fell and then at that point you would then spit again 
And then when you were standing on that spot, you'd make a third ejection of spit and then you would go and stand on there and that would be good luck. Um, and this was a practice that this this man who was interviewed said continued um, despite, you know, the changes that took place, continued and was still prevalent in his children who'd been taught this this charm, this custom um, uh, into the into the sort of um, into the 20th century. Um, and if you if you have a look at uh, children's folklore beliefs that's been collected throughout the country, there's quite a lot of it in existence. So it's not just in Plymouth. It's actually quite widespread. Um, a girl aged 11 uh, living in Perth in Scotland, uh, dated from 1954, records some, um, if you see a white horse, spit three times. Uh, a girl... Um, in Bath, 1952, if you see a white horse, you must spit over your left shoulder. Uh, another girl in Bath, when you see a white horse, you should cross your fingers and spit over them. Again, up in Scotland in 1952, if I see a white horse, I usually spit and wish a wish. This wish is supposed to come to pass. So it's this idea of spitting and luck. And this is something that we can also see connected in another superstitious way to attitudes towards ambulances. And there, there's a, a real anxiety in the early 20th century among children to ambulances uh, and what they do when they, when they see ambulances. And spit again is, is, is related to this. Um, there's a, a Manchester-based teacher who was reported to be, uh, he says, I was bringing a bunch of orphans to a party in my car yesterday when one of them saw an ambulance. Touch your collar and look for a four-footed animal, she commanded to the rest. And this practice was is actually very, very common in a, in a rhyme uh, from this period. Touch your collar, never swallow, never get the fever. Touch your nose, touch your toes, never go in one of those. So in Newcastle and then in Stoke-on-Trent, touch your collar, never swallow, never catch the fever. Not for me, not for me, not for all my family. Oh, I love that. That's a sort of that's a quite a rhymey one. Um, and so, again, it's not it's not spitting, but it's it's about not not swallowing. So it's about not swallowing down your your saliva. So there we are. A wow. whole range of ways in which in which spit and saliva comes into childhood culture in the early 20th century in all sorts of ways, not only as sort of part of play, but also as part of their superstitious beliefs. Wonderful. I, I came across a, a, something very similar, but particularly related to American stuff. Um, James, I'm sure you are familiar with uh, the Journal of American Folklore, Volume 3, Number 8? Uh, I'm certainly familiar with the Journal of uh, American folklore. I, I, it's never out of my hands. <laughs> this is an early, early edition. Eight, eighteen ninety. I love going back in time with these these things. Eighteen ninety, and you will remember James pages fifty one to fifty nine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Printed on my mind. Um, and uh, this wonderful article called Some Saliva Charms by Fanny D. Bergen. And mm. uh, it's very similar to what you've done, but from an American perspective. And it's really great. And I'm just going to read you out a little bit from this. Forty years ago, it was customary about Portland, Maine, in passing dead dogs 
cats and so on, to spit three times on the carrion to prevent the passerby from catching the itch. A lady brought up in Boston relates in a similar notion familiar to her in childhood, namely that if one encountered any dead animal and did not spit three times, he would certainly die of its disease. Uh, so there we are. Some uh, uh, great examples of spitting to prevent death, uh, or to prevent passing on of, of, of things. Well, some wonderful things here about finding out where birds' nests are. I love this. An old gentleman who will remember the practice states that in the neighbourhood of Salem, Massachusetts, 60 or 70 years ago, boys out birds' nesting, so what they're doing is trying to find nests maybe for collecting eggs, were wont to spit in the palm of one hand and then to strike the saliva a quick blow with the forefinger of the other, saying, spit, spat, spot, tell me where the bird's nest is. And then by flicking the spit, the direction of the most prominent drop of the spit indicates the locality of the bird's nest and where you've got to go. And this use of spit for finding things, there are all sorts of other examples of it. Um, this is one for kids in Salem in Massachusetts. Anything lost or mislaid, very similar to the bird's nesting one. Um, spit, spat, spo, where'd that go? So, James, if you lose your laptop or you lose whatever it might be, your phone or your mind, then you can just spit on your hand. Say, spit, spat, spo, where did that go? And flick spit somewhere and then go and follow the spit and it will tell you where it is which is a, a quite a quite a challenge there um it's a it's a wonderful article i'd urge you to go and look at it and it goes through uh back to ancient history lots and lots of roman charms um uh you know it's a roman costume to wet a finger with spittle and place it behind the ear to allay disquietude of mind uh, the same writer tells us that the Romans had a prejudice against meeting a person lame in the right leg <laughs> and that it was believed that the evil influence of such an unpropitious encounter might be repelled simply by spitting. So it's not just um, in the UK, James's examples. There are actually examples from uh, from all over the world. I've given you some American ones there. And the collector of, this, uh, um, of these charms also uh, managed to find examples from the Columbia River Indians, the South Sea Islanders, uh, Native American tribes, all sorts, and everyone, at some way or another, is is slightly obsessed with saliva and and how it can affect your life. So there we go. Quite a broad subject, James. Very good, very good. And that phrase "spit spat spot" uh, mm. makes me think of Mary Poppins. Uh, for it's a phrase that she uses, I think, to do with cleaning. But I'd have to I'd have to revisit my Mary Poppins. Mm. Well, I'm going to take us in a in a different direction now, but back to the United States and back to spitting. Uh, there and I'm going to talk about chewing tobacco and spittoons uh, a little bit which is quite gross um, but I want to start with a quote from the wonderfully named Ellis Paxson Oberholzer uh, who is a, an American historian uh, and in his work um, A History of the United States uh, Since the Civil War uh, published in 1917 he talks in great detail there about the prevalence of chewing tobacco, uh, particularly in the South. Uh, he writes, in the late 1860s, uh, chewing tobacco was uh, typically used. Um, the chewing of tobacco was well nigh universal. This habit had been widespread among the agricultural population of America, both North and South before the war. Soldiers had found the quid, in other words, the 
stuff that they tobacco they put in their mouth a solace in the field and continued to revolve it in their mouths upon returning to their homes out of doors where his life was principally led the chewer spat upon his lands without offence to other men and his homes and public buildings were supplied with spittoons brown and yellow parabolas were projected to right and left toward these receivers but very often without the careful aim which made for cleanly living even the pews of fashionable churches were likely to contain these familiar conveniences the large numbers of southern men and these were of the better class officers in the confederate army and planters worth twenty thousand dollars or more and barred from general amnesty who presented themselves for the pardon of President Johnson while they sat awaiting their pleasure in the anteroom at the White House, covered its floor with pools and rivulets of their spittle. An observant traveller in the South in 1865 said that in his belief, seven-tenths of all the persons above the age of twelve years, both male and female, used tobacco in some form. Women could be seen at the doors of their cabins in their bare feet, in their dirty one-piece cotton garments, their chairs tipped back, smoking pipes made of corn cobs into which they were fitted reed stems or goose quills. Boys of eight or nine years of age and half-grown girls smoked. Women and girls dipped in their houses, and dipped is basically the using chewing tobacco, on their porches, in the public parlours of hotels and on the streets. Now this led me to read something called The History of Smokeless Tobacco Use in the United States, which was written by Arden G. Christen and Elbert D. Glover. And it's in the journal Health Education, uh, which is published by Taylor & Francis online, dated... Uh, 2013. I won't go into great detail about this article, but it starts by charting uh, the use of tobacco, the discovery of tobacco, the exportation of tobacco when it, it comes from the New World, the way in which it's smoked, the way in which it's then used as a nasal snuff. So you pop it into your up into your nasal cavity, take a good snort, and then it goes up through the capillaries up there and into your bloodstream. Um, and then it, it is used as a form of chewing tobacco. So instead of being put up the nose, it's taken orally and you put it into the side of your mouth and, and you chew it. And this is something that we see increasing. And then in the 19th century, it declines a bit, but it stays in certain areas. What's um, worrying is the recent incline and increase in use um, and I remember as a as a young teenager uh, watching a documentary about something called Skull Bandits, uh, which is these like they're like tiny little um, imagine them as mini shredded wheats, <laughs> tiny little shredded wheats of of tobacco that you would put into your into your gum. And of course, they're they're concerned with with um, they're connected to um, oral cancer, mouth cancer. Um, but what I want to talk about is the way that um, the, this, trans, tra, this transfer from nasal snuff, um, uh, which declined, uh, and the increase of dipping, uh, which we see around the 1860s. And the late 1800s, oral dipping was very common, uh, particularly in the South, um, and 
poor American women, that only one in 50 of this group were reported to be exempt from its use. So it is well nigh ubiquitous for men and women. Uh, And it's recorded that the female snuff dipper takes a short stick and wetting it with her saliva, see there is a connection to saliva here, dips it into her snuff box and then rubs the gathered dust all about her mouth and into the intices of her teeth where she allows it to remain until its strength has been fully absorbed. Others hold the stick thus loaded with stuff in the cheek, a la quid of tobacco, and suck it with a decided relish while engaged in their ordinary evocations, while others simply fill the mouth with the snuff and imitate to all intents and purposes the chewing propensities of men. Uh, You quoted Charles Dickens uh, earlier on. Um, Charles Dickens, in his American Notes, very unflatteringly, you know, talks about the ubiquity of this, uh, talks about how, um, talks about um, the way in which it is absolutely everywhere in the courts of law. Um, He talks about... um, here in public building visitors are implored through the same agency to squirt the essence of their quids or plugs as i have learned in this kind of sweet meat into the national spittoons and not about the bases of the marble columns in some parts this custom is inseparable mixed up with every meal and morning call and with all the transactions of social life now Connected to what we were talking about last time, in our last episode, with the the rise of tuberculosis, the discovery by Robert Koch in 1882, so this German uh, physician and bacteriologist discovers and isolates the Bacillus tuberculosis organism. There is this uh, this sort of campaign against spitting. And part and parcel of this, because spitting is, of course, connected to chewing tobacco, part and parcel of it is an attack on tobacco consumption. And what we see is the emergence of tobacco reformers. And they attend uh, the International Congress of Tuberculosis. uh, And they are inspired by the uh, slogan, don't spit on the sidewalk. And the anti-tobacco movement takes off after this. The Methodists are against it. And in 1833, the Reverend Orrin Fowler declared that rum drinking will not cease until tobacco chewing and tobacco smoking and snuff taking shall cease. So it's, it's seen as part and parcel of all of society's ills. Um, and there is also the way in which they the way in which they attack it is to attack its properties, and they argue that um, tobacco the tobacco reformers believe that stale urine and ground glass was commonly used in the manufacture of smokeless tobacco. Uh, other people uh, claim that uh, tobacco was routinely cured in outhouses. So in other words, in toilets, in order to make its flavour brisker, stronger and more fetid. And it's also, tobacco is also connected to personal morals. So tobacco chewers are thought to be um, 
uh, are thought to uh, have passions uh, that are increased in the fires of kindled in their systems and their cerebellums by tobacco excitement. And there's a whole range of literature that describes the sort of moral bankruptcy of these people. Um, and also, they also describe the horrific illnesses and ailments caused by chewing tobacco and, and in particular swallowing this tobacco juice um, rather than rather than um, spitting it out. And also there is a there's, as I said in the first episode, there is a material culture of spitting, which is the spittoon. And the spittoon is a basically a receptacle for catching spit. When you spit out your chewing tobacco, uh, you need a receptacle to, to catch it rather than have it sort of going uh, all over the place. Um, and if you have a look at... Uh, if you put in to the Victoria and Albert Museum collection their catalogue you just put in spittoon you can gather up a range of different examples of spittoons from around the world and i think what that shows you is just the ubiquity of of spitting uh the ubiquity if we if we take your argument from last time sam where you talked about norbert, norbert elias's civilizing process if what we see is spitting in the 19th century suddenly becoming you know, offensive, um, actually having receptacles um, designed to catch it is part and parcel of that sort of those protocols of politeness. And I have here a beautiful, in front of me, a beautiful porcelain uh, spittoon made in Paris uh, towards the end of the 18th century, roughly dated between 1778 and, and 89. And it's made out of porcelain, uh, it's made in a porcelain factory, made at Locre and, and Rusinger's porcelain factory. It's painted in enamels and it's gilded. And it would have been used both by men and women. Um, the French philosopher Montesquieu noted that spitting was part of the snuff-taking ritual. Uh, he quotes, I saw the most proud little man. He took a pinch of snuff, wiped his nose so ruthlessly and spat with such phlegm that I could not cease to admire him. So actually the taking of this stuff and spitting out in a sort of very French way there uh, is part and parcel of what it is to be uh, a Frenchman. I'm looking so there at, we are. I'm looking at these now on the V&A catalogue. Incredible, aren't they? They're, they're absolutely incredible. I was imagining a kind of brass, mm. horrible kind of thing like you'd keep coal in, like a large thing on the floor. They're very delicate, and they, they're they as beautiful as any vase that you might see. Yes, yes. Oh, they? The, one, the one that I have here is like, is a little bit like a teacup with a sort of, if you imagine the saucer on top, it's sort of got an edge to catch the spit. So it's very, very delicate, very sort of fine bone porcelain. I'm looking at one here, which is, um, it's enamelware, I think, and it's made 1650 to 1700, beautiful uh, hand-painted Blue and white with some roses and some foliage in the middle in green and red. Oh, a, a magnificent shape, very narrow at the top. It goes out the belly and it's made in Iran. And I've got one very, very like that, which I bought in Iran. And so oh. I thought it was a vase, but I'm now thinking that I've bought a spittoon. Uh, you should use it. I should use it to spit in. So the interesting thing here is that obviously these are receptacles for saliva. Uh, and that should be flagging up um, some pretty serious 
potential possibilities for any of you who might be archaeologists or or anthropologists or scientists of any 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 stretch of the imagination. Because if if you've got saliva, you've got DNA, and that means that you can find out a great deal about the people who are actually doing the spitting. Um, James, you mentioned a little bit about this very early on, actually not in the last episode, in the tail end of our previous one on heads. And you said, oh, it's all about um, people in the 17th century, women in the 17th century licking needles uh, for yes. needlework and then that being used for DNA. So- I'm sure if we went through if we went through many of the samplers that survive at the Victorian Albert Museum and analysed them for spittle or saliva, you'd be able to pick up the DNA on it yeah so so it's not just spittoons the whole point is i've come across some work where people have actually um found it in pipes clay pipes and what's important about clay pipes is they're absolutely everywhere in the 17th and 18th and 19th century there isn't a kind of a limited number of them basically any archaeological site wherever it might be you will find broken clay pipes and they will probably have dna of the people inside them um from from their from their saliva there's an amazing one here where a little experiment was done um, on a pipe found in a Maryland uh, plantation uh, called Belvoir. I, I, plantation. It's interesting they're using the word plantation because it was a plantation, but other people are using the term agricultural forced labour camp um, somewhere for the forced labour of enslaved people, which I think brings the point home a little more. Anyway, they did a DNA analysis of this pipe and found out that it was... Um, used by a woman and that the her genetic ancestry was most closely matched with people living today in Sierra Leone. Now, this is all really important because uh, there's very few actual records of where um, enslaved people uh, came from in Africa, enslaved people in the United States, where they actually originated from. And being able to do this kind of DNA research on pipes and plantations, archaeological uh, excavations and plantations, is going to allow us to build up a map even though it's going to require quite a lot more work to create a decent database to compare with, because one of the problems is that the people in Africa are more genetically diverse than people on other continents. So although this lady may well be closely matched to a group of people from Sierra Leone, uh, she may well, in fact, be even more closely matched to a group of people who are not yet on the DNA database. So so there's more work to be done, but it seems very exciting. Um, And obviously doing analysis on those spittoons, I think it's a cracking idea as well. Yeah, definitely. Yuck. Yuck, Not not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I have one very final thing uh, that is tangentially linked to spit, uh, which is spitting image. I don't know whether you saw this during the 80s and 90s, but this is a satirical uh, show uh, created by Peter Fluck and Roger Law. Uh, It's now come back on our screens on BritBox. but it, it's the connection with spit is that the Roy Hattersley figure, uh, who is known for having a sort of lisp and sort of talking like this, uh, comes up and spits the titles onto the screen uh, as you as you speak. The spitting image titles of it. But what struck me about this is that um, not only that um, that spitting image is back on our screens, um, but also that it, I read that it has been archived by Cambridge University. Um, so not only have not only do we have the digital materials, so not only do we have the um, not only do we have uh, the shows themselves, the archive of that, but also we have everything that went along with it. So it includes the awards, the posters, the drawings, boxes of merchandise. It also includes the complaints 
uh, that people got. <laughs> I'd love to read um, them. <laughs> so it's actually a sort of a really rich um, material. And some of these puppets were were amazing. I remember Mike, Mikhail Gorbachev's um, uh, puppet, uh, which had his birthmark uh, in the shape of a, of a sort of um, sickle uh, on the, the on the front, the sort of um, the USSR uh, symbol. Um, I remember um, who else do I remember? I remember Bill Clinton was one of my favourites, uh, who just went around everywhere, glad-handing everyone. Uh, everyone was talking to him and doing politics, and he would just wander around the place, shaking hands and going, "Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you?" Um, and one of my favourite uh, sketches, because they this was the this was the height of that, Thatcher's Britain. Uh, so you've got all of Thatcher and, and her cabinet sort of presented in, in different ways. Kenneth Baker was brilliantly presented as a as a slug. Uh, Kenneth Clark, who was uh, the health minister for the time, was basically seen as sort of seriously obese and drunk uh, throughout. Um, and uh, Michael Heseltine was just getting more and more just sort of manic with a sort of flock of of you know, wonderful hair. And, and as he was uh, defence secretary at the time, he wore a flak jacket. Um, but the but the best thing, uh, the best example was when um, was when uh, Thatcher took the cabinet, uh, who were often depicted as, as sort of bickering school children around her. She takes them out for dinner uh, and, and she sort of, you know, acts as sort of, you know, schoolmistress uh, to them. And, and in one of these, she takes them to this restaurant and the waitress asks, um, uh, would you like to order, sir? Uh, which Thatcher responds, yes, I will have the steak. And the, the waitress says to her, and what about the vegetables? Uh, and turning to her cabinet, uh, she says, oh, they'll have the same as me. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I mean, it's, a, it's a shame it's not continued. It'd be really good to watch one on, based on American politics now. I'd, I'd absolutely love to see how they were all puppeted, all of these people. Is puppeted a word? It should be. It's puppeted. And it is. You can do so. Uh, if, you, if you Google the trailer, uh, you will see a brilliant Donald Trump um, <laughs> being, being, being heckled by... Um, by Boris Johnson. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, guys, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, here are some reviews that you've sent in. I said I was going to read them out. They're absolutely great. This is JF Lovett, five stars. Really great podcast, History Made Fun. It's unique, interesting and insightful and it's piloted by two superb and credible historians. I'm a history geek, but others who aren't, who've overheard the pod, have found themselves equally gripped and intrigued. Uh, these are from Apple Podcast Guys. As many of these reviews as you can do will really, really help us spread the word. Um, from Trebs EQ, wonderful podcast, professional produced five stars from jd fox one just discovered this pair utterly brilliant history podcast can't wait to read their new book and catch them live um do as i say please review we'll read them out we'll give you all a shout out you can follow me for updates on at dr sam willis and please check out my new podcast dedicated to maritime history called the mariner's mirror and you can follow me at james dable and you can follow the podcast on at unexpected odd and if you are feeling like you have deep pockets at these troubled times and want to help out keeping the podcast going during covid um we have a patreon uh, page so check that out it's histories of the unexpected yes and any help will be gratefully received thanks guys uh, we're going to come back with patience next week aren't we not not um patience as in being patient uh, but being a patient james p-a-t-i-e-n-t-s Yes, excellent. Something we should also do the history of the history of spelling at some point. As well. <laughs> that's a cracking idea. All right, <laughs> I think we'll that do would that. be good. Yeah. Okay. We'll just spell out all of the words. Okay. Uh, that's it, guys. Uh, see you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>